Hi, it's Chris Flanagan here. Welcome to Pediatric Emergencies. In two out of the three last podcasts, I've mentioned raised intracranial pressure and neuroprotective measures. So I felt it's about time I put a podcast out on what I meant by this. So the topic of this podcast is raised intracranial pressure. So to start off, um, this time I'm going to start with a little bit of physiology. So please bear with me through this because it's uh, pretty important to the actual management principles. Okay, so the skull is a, a rigid box once the fontanelles have closed and it's composed of three main components. Um, the brain occupies about 85% of the space, the CSF about 10% and the blood 5%. And the Monroe Kelly Doctrine states that as the skull has a fixed volume, that if the volume of any one of the above three components, the brain, the CSF or the blood, was to occupy more volume, that unless it's accompanied by a decrease in one of the other components, that there'll be a rise in intracranial pressure. Um, And when intracranial volume starts to rise, there are compensatory mechanisms that are put into place to try and keep intracranial pressure steady. So the first things that happen are that the um, CSF is pushed out into the spinal canal. There's increased absorption of CSF and decreased production. The venous sinuses are compressed and blood is pushed out of the skull. So you can see from the graph here of intracranial volume against intracranial pressure. Initially as intracranial volume increases, there's very little increase in intracranial pressure until a critical point is reached where the compensatory mechanisms can no longer compensate for the increased intracranial volume. And a very small increase in intracranial volume produces a large increase in intracranial pressure. Okay, the next thing I want to look at is the effect of blood pressure on cerebral blood flow. So um, normal cerebral blood flow is about 50 mils per 100 grams of brain tissue per minute. And if cerebral blood flow were to increase, um, it would increase intracranial volume um, and therefore have potential to increase intracranial pressure. Um, If cerebral blood flow were to decrease, um, there's risk of cerebral ischemia. So the brain normally keeps cerebral blood flow fairly constant um, over a wide range of blood pressures by autoregulation. And you can see from the graph here that um, cerebral blood flow is kept fairly constant at 50 mils per 100 grams of brain tissue per minute over a mean blood pressure of about 50 to 150 millimetres of mercury. Um, And it's only when the blood pressure increases above this that cerebral blood flow increases. And when the blood pressure decreases below 50 millimetres of mercury, um, cerebral blood flow decreases. And this is due to autoregulation and these values are for an adult patient. So obviously in children, the curve will be shifted to the left-hand side, but there's still a wide range of blood pressures where cerebral blood flow will be kept constant. So this relationship is for the healthy brain. The problem is whenever the brain becomes ischemic, for example, in cerebral edema, or injured secondary to trauma, that um, autoregulation is lost and blood flow becomes directly dependent on blood pressure. So the formula for cerebral perfusion pressure is mean arterial pressure minus intracranial pressure. 
Um, and that's why in dealing with patients with suspected raised intracranial pressure where the brain is ischemic or has been injured, that it's important that we target the minimal cerebral perfusion pressure, which I'll come on to in a little while. Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about is the effect of oxygen and carbon dioxide on cerebral blood flow. So you can see from the graph here, we've got gas tension in kilopascals along the x-axis and blood flow in mils per hundred grams of brain tissue along the y-axis. So the effect of oxygen on cerebral blood flow is the, the blue line and carbon dioxide is the brown line. So you can see that uh, PaO2 has minimal effect on cerebral blood flow. So you've got a horizontal line um, above 6.7 kilopascals. So increasing the oxygen above this level makes no difference to cerebral blood flow. And it's really only when the PaO2 falls below 6.7 that you get a rapid increase in cerebral blood flow, um, which will increase intracranial pressure. So this is why it's important that you avoid hypoxia when dealing with a patient with suspected raised intracranial pressure. So increasing carbon dioxide increases the diameter of the arteries supplying the brain, therefore increasing cerebral blood flow. So you can see that as uh, PaCO2 increases, so does cerebral blood flow. Um, in an almost linear relationship between a PaCO2 of 3.3 kilopascals to 10.6 kilopascals. Um, below 3.3 kilopascals, um, the arteries are maximally constricted. So um, no further decrease in CO2 will um, cause them to constrict anymore. And at these levels, there's risk of ischemia to the brain. Above 10.6 kilopascals, the arteries are maximally dilated. And there's no further increase in cerebral blood flow with increase of CO2 above 10.6 kilopascals. So you can see that controlling CO2 in a patient with uh, raised intracranial pressure um, is pretty important. Um, we tend to keep CO2 in the low normal range. Should it increase above this, there's increased um, cerebral blood flow, increased intracranial volume, and therefore increased intracranial pressure. Should we lower it too much, we risk cerebral ischemia. So it's often a balance starting in the low normal range. And should there be concerns about increasing intracranial pressure, we may need to bring that slightly lower. But in doing so, we're risking cerebral ischemia. Another factor that affects uh, cerebral blood flow and hence intracranial pressure is cerebral metabolic rate. Um, so as cerebral metabolism increases, so does blood flow. Therefore, seizures and pyrexia, which increase cerebral metabolic rate, um, increase cerebral blood flow and sedation and hypothermia, which uh, decrease cerebral metabolic rate, will reduce cerebral blood flow and hence intracranial pressure. The drugs that we give also um, can affect cerebral blood flow and therefore intracranial pressure. So things like uh, thiopentin and propofol um, reduce cerebral blood flow and can therefore be used to reduce intracranial pressure. Um, and drugs such as ketamine and volatile agents may increase cerebral blood flow and hence intracranial pressure. So I'm now going to go on and discuss a case um, and these principles that we've just discussed will be really important um, in explaining why we're doing what we're doing um, when we come to the management of the child. So the case is a nine-year-old boy who was previously fit and well 
with no significant past medical history of note, no regular medications uh, or allergies. And he's brought into the emergency department by ambulance after falling off a rope swing. So he had been playing with his older brother who had witnessed the fall uh, and he states that he didn't lose consciousness at any stage. When the paramedics arrived, they find that he was conscious but confused and they noted an obvious swelling over his right parietal region. Um, on the way into the emergency department, he vomited on two occasions in the ambulance. So when he arrives in the emergency department, he has an ABCDE examination. So at the moment, he's maintaining his airway and his cervical spine is immobilized with a collar and board. He's breathing at 30 breaths per minute with no signs of respiratory distress. His chest is clear bilaterally with no additional signs and he's saturating at 100% on 15 litres of oxygen via a non-rebreather mask. Examining his chest, there's no obvious chest wall injuries and his trachea is central. Looking at his circulation, he's warm and well perfused with a heart rate of 90 beats per minute which is sinus rhythm on the monitor. His blood pressure is slightly elevated at 120 over 76. So he has a couple of large bore cannulas sighted and a trauma panel sent. Moving on to disability, um, his Glasgow coma scale is assessed and he is eye-opening only to pain. He is making non-pacific signs and withdrawing to pain. So this gives him a Glasgow coma scale of 8 out of 15, 2 for eye-opening, 2 for verbal and 4 for motor. Looking at his pupils, there is some asymmetry. Um, his pupils are about size 4mm on the left-hand side and 6mm on the right-hand side and are actually quite sluggish to light, particularly on the right-hand side. His blood glucose is 8.2 millimoles per litre. Um, and looking at exposure, um, he has a boggy swelling over his right parietal region, um, but no other injury is noted. His abdomen is nice and soft and non-tender. So in summary, this child has a significant head injury. Um, there's a likely skull fracture with the boggy swelling, and there's likely to be uh, intracranial pathology as well in view of his altered neurology. And he doesn't appear to have sustained any other injuries. So when you look at the algorithm for uh, raised intracranial pressure, this child um, fulfills a number of the criteria. So he has a reduced GCS and a fluctuating level of consciousness. Um, he's not bradycardic, um, but is slightly hypertensive. Uh, and this sort of Cushing's response tends to be a late sign of raised intracranial pressure. He does have some focal neurology with um, altered pupillary signs. Um, his posture seems normal at the moment. Um, he's not having any seizures. He does have um, abnormal pupillary responses. We haven't checked for papilledema, but this would be a late sign of raised intracranial pressure. Uh, and would be unlikely to be present at this stage. Uh, and the last feature they mention is abnormal doll's eye movements, but this would be inappropriate to check in a patient with an immobilized cervical spine. So I'm now going to come on and discuss the management of this child um, using a systems-based approach. So starting with the airway, um, it's important to maintain a patent airway um, in these patients 
um, we've already mentioned hypoxia and hypercapnia are to be avoided. Um, as it's a trauma patient, um, it's important that you only use a jaw thrust to open the airway and avoid a head tilt, chin lift. Um, if it's a patient with generalized cerebral edema, then of course you can use any method to open the airway that you need to. Um, and again, in keeping with avoiding hypoxia, um, all these patients should be given high flow oxygen. It's important to keep uh, suction to hand to keep the airway clear of any blood and secretions. Um, also, this patient is at high risk of vomiting as they've had a bang to the head. Um, they're also immobilized on their back with a reduced consciousness level, so may not have adequate airway protective reflexes. So if they do vomit, are at high risk of aspirating. Um, like any trauma patient, um, it's important that the cervical spine is immobilized, as has been done in this case. If you're having difficulty maintaining the airway with the jaw thrust, um, you might want to consider an oropharyngeal airway, as the patient's uh, Glasgow coma scale is depressed and may tolerate it. However, if you can maintain the airway without doing this, it's probably advisable, um, as inserting the oropharyngeal airway may cause vomiting. Um, it's important to avoid nasopharyngeal airways in the trauma patient uh, due to risk of basal skull fracture. So indications for intubating a child with uh, suspected elevated um, intracranial pressure includes a glass of scale of less than 8 um, as they won't be able to maintain or protect their airway. Also if they're apneic or hypoventilating they would uh, obviously need intubation. Um, outside this, there would be other reasons for intubating. If the patient is um, maintaining an airway but hyperventilating, um, they will lower their CO2, um, causing cerebral ischemia. Um, and even if the CO2 is normal and the patient's ventilating well, um, but has a depressed level of consciousness but not below it, you may still elect to intubate them to um, take control of their CO2 for um, reducing intracranial pressure or to facilitate safe transfer for uh, neuroimaging. So our patient fulfills a number of these criteria. He has a reduced level of consciousness, so is unlikely to be able to protect his airway. Um, he has a significant head injury with signs of raised intracranial pressure, so we're going to want to take control of his CO2. Um, and also he's going to need transferred for neuroimaging unlikely need neurosurgery so he needs a securer way so he will require intubation and ventilation so if you're going to intubate a patient like this they generally have a full stomach um, so it's going to be a rapid sequence induction um, performed with manual inline stabilization with the collar removed and replaced with the inline stabilization um, so this is a five person uh, technique so you need somebody to um, maintain the inline stabilization while the collar is removed, um, somebody to do cricoid pressure, somebody to intubate, an airway assistant to pass the equipment, and somebody to give drugs. So you need quite a few pairs of hands. Um, deciding what induction agent you're going to use um, is a little bit controversial and has become more controversial in recent years. The traditional teaching was that uh, ketamine should be avoided in cases of head injury or uh, raised intracranial pressure um, as it was thought to further increase intracranial pressure. 
and that drugs such as thiopentone or propofol, which will reduce intracranial pressure, um, should be used. We now know that these original studies um, were actually based on quite weak evidence and that since then there have been further studies which has called the original findings into question um, and that actually some studies have shown that ketamine in a setting of raised intracranial pressure can reduce intracranial pressure and um, there is actually no study showing that ketamine is harmful in the setting of raised intracranial pressure or head injuries. Um, the reason for using ketamine is that it's a very cardiac stable drug and it will maintain mean arterial pressure. We've already mentioned that cerebral perfusion pressure is mean arterial pressure minus intracranial pressure. Um, and the reason for using ketamine is that it is more likely to maintain cerebral perfusion pressure than uh, thiopentone and propofol as it will maintain the blood pressure. Um, although it may elevate ICP slightly, um, overall it maintains a good cerebral perfusion pressure. While thiopentone and propofol have the benefit of reducing intracranial pressure, they will often cause hypotension, so overall will reduce cerebral perfusion pressure. So at the moment there's no right or wrong approach, um, but what is important is that hypotension must be avoided on induction. Hypotension will reduce cerebral perfusion pressure, so it must be avoided whatever agent you use, and you should titrate your induction agent towards the patient's hemodynamic status. So for example, for a patient who is a multi-trauma patient who's bleeding, or a patient with sepsis and cerebral edema, um, certainly in this scenario, I think ketamine would be the right drug to use and that use of propofol or thiopentone um, would be wrong in this scenario. For a patient with an isolated head injury, um, with no other signs of bleeding, a patient who's actively seizing, or a patient who's markedly hypertensive, thiopentone or propofol is probably the right agent to use here. Um, you may want to consider adding a little bit of fentanyl, one to two mics per kilo, to blunt the pressure response to um, laryngoscopy. So, like any induction in a critically ill child, um, it's important to prepare for hypotension um, by having some volume prepared and also some uh, vasoactive drugs should hypotension occur. Um, in this particular scenario, hypotension should ideally be prevented, but should it occur, it's important that it's promptly and aggressively treated. Um, so, during the induction, have the blood pressure cuff cycling every minute. Um, during the apnea period, while we're waiting for muscle relaxant to take effect, um, it's common practice in small children um, to have gentle hand ventilation um, during this period. And again, it's particularly important in this setting as you're going to try and avoid hypoxia and hypercapnia. In the older child with uh, normal lungs, um, you should be able to perform a classical RSI. Um, you should expect your view at uh, laryngoscopy to be suboptimal um, due to um, immobilization of the cervical spine. So it's important you have an appropriately sized uh, bougie to hand to uh, counteract this. So if you plan to use an endotracheal tube um, less than a size 4, um, you should use a size 5 bougie. Between a size 4 and 5.5mm, use a size 10 bougie. And uh, from size 6 plus, 
um, a size 15 bougie. Um, I would recommend using a cuffed oral tube uh, in all cases um, as you don't want to be going back and changing the tube should there be a leak around it. Um, and also it's important to say um, to avoid uh, nasal endotracheal intubation in patients with uh, head trauma as there's a risk of basal skull fracture. Okay, so moving on to the breathing. Um, what I will say here is that you probably should use a, a volume mode of ventilation if it's available to you. A volume mode of ventilation maintains a stable ventilation uh, despite changes in lung compliance and therefore should provide better control of CO2 than a pressure mode um, where the tidal volume delivered will change with changes in lung compliance. Um, so if you're using a volume mode, um, start with around about 68 mils per kilo um, or peak pressures of 20 centimetres of water if you're using a pressure mode and then adjust that depending on the chest movement and uh, blood gases. Um, it's important to use um, minimal or normal PEEP um, as increased PEEP impairs cerebral venous drainage. So I would start with a PEEP of around about 5 centimetres of water. Um, you should use a normal IT ratio of uh, 1 to 2 with an eye time of 0.6 to 0.8 seconds for those less than a year. 0.8 to 1 second for children between 1 and 5 years of age. 1 to 1.2 seconds for children between 5 and 12 years of age. And 1.2 to 1.5 seconds um, for children uh, greater than 12 years of age. And then obviously adjust the rate depending on your CO2. And we've already mentioned the effects that uh, PaCO2 has on cerebral blood flow and therefore intracranial pressure. Um, so we tend to start with a low normal CO2, uh, 4.5 to 5 kilopascals, um, and reducing this um, should we need to. But accepting that if we're going lower than this, we're increasing the risk of cerebral ischemia. Um, and we generally target a PaO2 um, greater than 12. Um, knowing that um, hypoxia significantly increases cerebral blood flow and hence intracranial pressure. Um, what I will say here, it's important that you correlate your end tidal CO2 with your PaCO2 um, so that you can make adjustments in the ventilation without having to draw off another blood gas. Um, it goes without saying that hypoxia and hypercapnia must be avoided. Um, so if you're going to uh, suction the patient, um, they should be pre-oxygenated. And if you're going to be handbagging them, again, monitor the entitled CO2 during this process. You'll be doing a chest x-ray as part of your trauma series uh, in this patient. Um, and on that, you'll be able to see where the endotracheal tube is. But uh, it's important if you're intubating the patient, for example, with cerebral edema, that you do a chest x-ray uh, routinely to confirm the endotracheal tube position. Okay, moving on to the circulation. So the first thing that I want to talk about here is access. So like any sick patient that is going to need a transfer, um, you should have two working ports of access. Um, so ideally two large bore peripheral cannula in the setting of a trauma patient, or if it's taking a long time to cite these, you should go on ahead and search interosseous access and um, making sure it's not in a fractured limb. Whether you then go on ahead and insert uh, arterial or central line, 
depends on what's actually wrong with your patient and whether they need any time critical interventions. Um, so for example, in our patient, we suspect that he does need time critical intervention. So he needs a time critical CT to confirm our suspicion of a neurosurgical problem. And then he needs a time critical transfer by the local team. So delaying that CT scan to insert an arterial or central line um, would not be in this child's best interest. And once the CT scan confirms a time critical lesion, delaying transfer to a neurosurgical sensor for insertion of central arterial line would also not be in this child's best interest. So if, for example, the CT scan doesn't show a lesion that requires neurosurgical intervention, then at that stage, uh, insertion of central arterial lines to allow more accurate monitoring and to facilitate uh, control of cerebral perfusion pressure um, can be considered. So we've already said that uh, cerebral perfusion pressure is equal to mean arterial pressure minus intracranial pressure. So hypotension will cause reduction in cerebral perfusion pressure and may cause cerebral ischemia. So hypotension must ideally be avoided, but if it occurs, it should be promptly and aggressively treated. Um, so it's important, particularly in time critical transfers, where we won't be inserting arterial or central lines, that the blood pressure is cycling at least every five minutes um, and more frequently during the induction period of anesthesia. Um, it's important that we target the age-related minimal value for cerebral perfusion pressure um, in these children. And you can see the targets here uh, in this table. So for somebody less than a year, the target cerebral perfusion pressure is 40 millimeters of mercury. One to two years, it's 45 millimeters of mercury. Three to four years, 50 millimeters of mercury. Five to six years, 55 millimeters of mercury. Seven to 10 years, 60 millimeters of mercury. 11 to 15 years, 65 millimeters of mercury. And greater than 50 years, 70 millimeters of mercury. So we've mentioned that CPP is MAP minus ICP. Um, but in most of these children, we won't at this stage be able to monitor their intracranial pressure. So practically to do this, we assume their intracranial pressure is elevated and pick a value of 20 millimeters of mercury. So if we add 20 millimeters of mercury to the target CPP, it gives us a target mean arterial pressure to target. So for example, for that child less than one, where we would target a CPP, of 40 millimeters of mercury, we would do that by targeting a mean arterial pressure of 60 millimeters of mercury. Alternatively, you can target the 95th percentile um, for the patient's age. And you can find these values um, together with the target CPP values in the PICU calculator app, uh, which I've designed. So you can see that the pressures that you're going to be targeting are um, above normal um, and that's because we're suspecting intracranial pressure to be elevated so need a slightly elevated blood pressure to maintain cerebral perfusion pressure in a patient where autoregulation is going to be lost so to do that we often need to use vasoactive drugs uh, and the ideal vasoactive drug to do this is noradrenaline
So obviously if you have a hypovolemic patient, for example in sepsis with cerebral edema, or if you have a multi-trauma patient with uh, blood loss causing hypovolemia, you should treat these causes as well as just using vasopressors to target a CPP. Um, also in the setting of um, the bleeding trauma patient where you would normally target permissive hypotension um, to reduce the risk of re-bleeding and shaving off that first clot that is formed, um, you may need to target slightly lower um, CPP targets, um, balancing up the risks of bleeding versus the risks of cerebral perfusion. And uh, these will have to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. So in this setting, discuss the targets with the retrieval team. So going back to the noradrenaline, we've already mentioned that in patients needing time-critical transfer, you shouldn't be inserting a central line um, so you'll be administering noradrenaline via a good peripheral or intraosseous line in a dilute solution. And I'll cover the making up of that uh, noradrenaline infusion a little later in the talk. What I would say though is that even if your patient is currently meeting the required cerebral perfusion targets, that it's good practice to make up the peripheral noradrenaline infusion, connect it to the patient have the rate set on the infusion pump but leave it on hold so that should the patient become hypotensive at any stage for example in the CT scanner or on transfer to the neurosurgical centre that the pump can be started without any delay and that the period where the patient has a suboptimal cerebral perfusion pressure is kept to the minimum. Okay now moving on to disability. So it's important to perform a brief neurological assessment prior to the induction of anaesthesia where possible. Um, so Glasgow Coma Scale and pupillary reflexes at a minimum. Um, and this is important for predicting the severity of head injury and also the likelihood of finding a time-critical lesion, which allows you to make um, early discussions with the neurosurgeon even prior to the CT being performed. So if your initial neurological assessment raises suspicions that the patient has a time-critical neurosurgical lesion, you should aim to perform a CT scan of the brain within 30 minutes of presentation of the emergency department, i.e. leaving the emergency department after 20 minutes so that you can have the scan done within 30 minutes. The CT scan should then be immediately reported and if it does confirm the presence of a time-critical neurosurgical lesion, you should aim to be leaving the District General Hospital to transfer the child to the neurosurgical centre within one hour of completing the scan. And as this will be a time-critical transfer, it should be done by the local team. So throughout the patient's stay, um, you should be initiating neuroprotective measures in all patients with uh, suspected raised intracranial pressure. Um, and this is where the initial physiology that we discussed um, comes into play. So you should be trying to encourage cerebral venous drainage by ensuring that the head of the bed is up 30 degrees and that the head is in the midline. So obviously in a trauma patient you can't put a bend in the bed but you can tilt the whole bed to 30 degrees. Um, you should ensure that the, the neck collar isn't too tight and that the endotracheal tube ties aren't too tight. Um, so preferably use tape rather than ties. 
um, you should avoid inserting any um, cannula or lines into the internal jugular veins, so preventing cerebral venous drainage, and avoid the use of excessive PEEP. It's also important to control the blood supply to the brain, so we'll already be doing this by targeting low normal CO2, 4.5 to 5 kilopascals, and preventing hypoxia by targeting the PaO2 of greater than 12 kilopascals. We'll be planning to reduce cerebral metabolic rate um, by keeping the patient well sedated and paralysed. We'll aim to prevent and treat seizures and maintain normothermia. It will also be important to target the minimum values for cerebral perfusion pressure that we've discussed in the circulation section. Um, we should treat cerebral edema um, if it's suspected with either hypertonic saline, the dose of 3 mils per kilo or 3% hypertonic saline over 5 minutes, or 0.5 grams per kilo of manadol over 30 minutes. If there's suspicion of local swelling around a space-occupying lesion, for example, an intracranial tumour, you can consider administering 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of dexamethasone up to a maximum dose of 20 milligrams to reduce local swelling. If the patient has a ventricular peritoneal shunt that you suspect is blocked, tapping this to remove some CSF will help reduce intracranial pressure. So in this scenario, discuss this option with the neurosurgeons. From a point of view of keeping the child asleep, um, I would normally use morphine of 10 to 60 mics per kilo per hour, amidazolam of one to four mics per kilo per minute, um, making sure the patient is well sedated, as that will be important for reducing cerebral metabolic demand and preventing spikes in intracranial pressure. Um, it would also be important if you're going to do any painful procedures that you administer extra boluses of um, analgesia prior to this. So for this purpose, I would use fentanyl in doses of one to two mics per kilo um, prior to any procedure. And it's also important that you keep the patient paralyzed with whatever your preferred muscle relaxant is. So the patient's going to be at high risk of having seizures. And as you're going to be keeping them paralyzed, they're going to be harder to detect so you should have a, a low index of suspicion. And things like dilated pupils, tachycardia, and hypertension should make you suspicious that the patient is seizing, and they should be treated by, as per the standard seizure protocol. So you can see the talk on status epilepticus for advice on how to do that. So should the CT scan show that the patient doesn't have a, a time-critical lesion that requires neurosurgical intervention, um, I think it would be advisable to load the patient up with 20 milligrams per kilogram of phenytoin in an attempt to prevent the patient from seizing, providing the phenytoin wasn't uh, contraindicated. However, for the patient who does require a time-critical transfer, it's probably more important that you get the patient transferred without any delay than trying to prevent seizures at this stage. So the phenytoin can be given once the patient gets to the intensive care. Um, another important point is the pupils are going to need to be assessed on a regular basis, so at least every 15 minutes um, during the transfer uh, as part of your ongoing CNS observations. So uh, don't tape the eyes closed. Um, it's also important that you keep an eye on the blood sugar as both hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia are associated with a worse outcome in head injuries. 
Um, but obviously insulin signing scales aren't going to be appropriate in the patient requiring time critical transfer. Moving on to sepsis, if the raised intracranial pressure is secondary to, for example, meningitis or encephalitis, it's important that you administer adequate antimicrobial cover appropriate to the suspected cause. So you can see the sepsis top for mice on that. Um, the routine administration of antibiotics um, isn't recommended in traumatic brain injury, even if there is suspected CSF leak unless it's requested by the neurosurgeon. We've already mentioned that parexia will increase intracranial pressure by increasing cerebral metabolic demand and therefore cerebral blood flow. So it's important that you keep these patients normothermic and treat any parexia aggressively. From a renal point of view, intravenous fluid should be restricted to 80% of maintenance as patients are at risk of syndrome of inappropriate ADH secretion. Um, you should also use isotonic fluids. So for children less than two years of age, 0.9% saline with 5% dextrose plus or minus added potassium would be appropriate. Um, for children greater than two years, just normal saline plus or minus added potassium would be the, the ideal fluid. As we've already mentioned, hyperglycemia um, will worsen outcome in head injury. You shouldn't delay the transfer to either CT or to a neurosurgical centre to catheterise the bladder in a patient requiring time critical scan or transfer. However, if the patient isn't requiring transfer um, in a time critical manner, the bladder should be catheterised as the pain associated with the full bladder can cause an increase in intracranial pressure. From a gastrointestinal point of view, keep the patient nil by mouth. Um, an orogastric tube should be inserted, again avoiding the nose in trauma patients and then this should be aspirated, removing any air that could be splinting the diaphragm and leave it on free drainage following this. Moving on to labs and electrolytes. So obviously the blood that you send um, will depend on the cause of raised intracranial pressure. Um, but as a general screen, it'll be worth sending a full blood picture, clotting and cross match, which again will be important in any patient undergoing surgery. Um, urine electrolytes, again, you're going to want to know particularly what the sodium is doing, uh, as we tend to target sodium in the high normal range. Um, liver function tests will be important in the patient with um, unknown cause of um, cerebral edema, because that could be related to hepatic encephalopathy. Um, Amylase mice should be considered in a trauma patient. Um, we tend to check calcium, magnesium and phosphate in all intensive care patients. Um, CRP will be important if we're worried about infection. We've already mentioned that you should keep an eye on the blood glucose and the blood gas and a lactate um, should be performed in any critically unwell patient. If there's concerns about sepsis, uh, a blood culture should be sent, particularly if you're going to start antibiotics. Um, and if you have uh, cerebral edema causing raised intracranial pressure with uh, no obvious cause, um, then you should consider sending a toxicology screen um, and also looking at metabolic causes, so sending a metabolic screen, including uh, pneumonia. So hyponatremia itself um, can be a cause of cerebral edema and it will worsen cerebral edema um, from other causes. So if hyponatremia is present, 
um, it should be treated by administering 3 mils per kilo of 3% hypertonic saline over 15 minutes. Um, and what I would say in this scenario, um, I would treat the sodium on the blood gas rather than waiting for the formal lab results. Um, it would also be important that you don't forget to administer tranexamic acid um, and correct coagulopathy in a bleeding trauma patient. So um, now I want to go on and talk a little bit more about some of the drugs and infusions you'll be administering to these patients. So the first drug I want to mention is hypertonic saline. Um, and we tend to use hypertonic saline as an osmotic agent for the treatment of cerebral edema or for the treatment of hyponatremia in the setting of raised intracranial pressure. And it tends to be the 3% hypertonic saline that is used. So it works as an osmotic agent by uh, drawing fluid from the brain back into the circulation, therefore reducing the volume that the brain takes up in the skull and, and therefore reducing intracranial pressure. Um, it has the added advantage that it expands the intravascular volume and so is less likely to produce hypovolemia, um, which can occur with uh, mannitol administration. Um, it should be avoided if the sodium is greater than 160. In that scenario, um, mannitol should be used. Uh, like I've mentioned, the dose is 3 mils per kilo over 5 to 15 minutes uh, for the treatment of cerebral edema. And if it's been administered for asymptomatic hyponatremia, um, it's generally given a bit more slowly over 30 minutes. If you don't have a, a bag of 3% hypertonic saline, um, it's relatively simple to make up. So all you need to do is take 36 mils out of a 500 ml bag of 0.9% saline and replace it with 36 mils of 30% saline to make a bag of 3% hypertonic saline. So the next drug I want to mention is mannitol. So mannitol acts similarly to hypertonic saline by acting as an osmotic agent and drawing fluid out of the brain. So initially it will expand the intravascular volume. However, it has a later effect as an osmotic diuretic. So can reduce the circulating volume and cause hypotension, um, which we've mentioned um, blood pressure is important for maintaining cerebral perfusion pressure. So this will be something you would need to keep an eye on and might be more of a reason for using hypertonic saline uh, first line in these patients. Um, another problem with um, mannitol is that uh, repeat doses have less effect, but the first dose will certainly work as effectively as hypertonic saline. You'll just need to um, monitor for the late effects caused by the osmotic um, diuretics and it may affect then um, interpretation of uh, urinary electrolytes um, when the patient's in the intensive care environment. So my preferred preference is to use hypertonic saline uh, first line. If you do want to use mannitol or hypertonic saline it is contraindicated. Uh, the dose of mannitol is 0.25 to 1.5 grams per kilo um, given by intravenous infusion over 30 to 60 minutes, um, repeating in 48 hours if required, um, providing the serum osmolarity is less than 310 uh, milliosmoles per litre. Um, what I tend to do with it is to give it in aliquots at 0.5 grams per kilo, which is 2.5 mils per kilo of 20% mannitol 
over 30 minutes and then I can repeat that up to two times um, before reaching the maximum dose of 1.5 grams per kilo for that four to six hour period. Um, I'd mentioned dexamethasone earlier um, for the treatment of uh, localized edema around a space occupying lesion. So that's the only reason um, dexamethasone should be given for raised intracranial pressure um, and it's not effective for generalized cerebral edema. Um, so it should be given an initial dose of 0.5 grams per kilo up to a maximum dose of 20 milligrams um, by slow intravenous injection over three to five minutes. Um, it's often continued on in a smaller dose every two to three hours um, under specialist advice of the neurosurgeons. So the next drug I want to mention is uh, noradrenaline. So we mentioned that uh, noradrenaline is indicated for the maintenance of the cerebral perfusion pressure targets in the setting of raised intracranial pressure after restoring the circulating volume. Um, I've said it's uh, fine to give this peripherally or via an interosseous line in the patient requiring time critical transfer. Uh, and the way to do that is to make up a very dilute solution of noradrenaline. So you make up one milligram of noradrenaline in 50 mils of 0.9% saline. And a normal starting dose for this is 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. Um, and the best way to do this is to um, start at 0.3 times the patient's weight in kilograms to uh, give a rate of 0.1 mics per kilo per minute and then titrate it to effect. So even if you are going to cite a central line and you're not meeting your cerebral perfusion targets, it's often quicker to start a peripheral effusion while the central line is being inserted. If you do want to make up central strength noradrenaline, it's 0.3 times the weight milligrams in 50 mils of 0.9% saline and then start it at a millinar uh, via the central line, which will give you the same starting dose of 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. Okay, so I just want to summarize a few of the key management points for managing the patient with raised intracranial pressure. So the first thing is it's really important to identify the patient who may have raised intracranial pressure. And we've talked about the features that may make you suspicious of this. So if you do identify a patient who may have raised intracranial pressure, the first thing you want to do is to try and prevent secondary injury to the brain by avoiding hypoxia, hypercapnia and hypotension and initiating the neuroprotective measures that we have already outlined. So the next thing to do is to try and identify the patient who has a cause for their elevated intracranial pressure that would be amenable to neurosurgery. And the best way of doing this is performing an urgent CT scan of the brain. So it's important that this is done within 30 minutes of arriving at the emergency department. So this requires the initial stabilization to be done in a structured and timely manner, leaving the emergency department after 20 minutes if possible. Should this scan confirm suspicions of a neurosurgical lesion, it's important that this patient gets to the neurosurgical intervention in a safe and timely manner. So to ensure this happens requires good planning and communication with all the different professionals involved. So this involves having CT on standby 
with a radiologist and neurosurgeon ready to report the scan. Having the ambulance crew called in good time so there's no delay in departing. And as we've mentioned previously, you should be departing for neurosurgical intervention within an hour of completing the CT scan. So again, I want to stress the importance of avoiding unnecessary interventions. So the patient who requires time critical transfer to a neurosurgical center does not need an arterial line inserted, does not need a central line inserted, and does not need a urinary catheter inserted. And if you are delaying their transfer to definitive care for one of these interventions, you're putting the patient at risk of having a worse outcome. So a useful tip here is to call the emergency ambulance um, once you've confirmed on CT that you need a time critical transfer. So if you have the two ambulance guys standing there ready to go, it's going to discourage you from performing any unnecessary interventions. It's important that you hand over what still needs to be done, for example, completion of the secondary survey or any safeguarding concerns so that things aren't left out. So as this is a time critical transfer, um, it will require the local team to transfer the patient to the tertiary centre rather than the retrieval team coming out to get the patient, which will result in a delay on the patient getting to definitive care. So to make sure this goes smoothly, this should be something that your organisation has trained for and planned for. Um, and I would strongly encourage the use of a checklist um, to make sure this is done timely and safely. Finally, I want to talk a little bit about how you would manage an increase in intracranial pressure en route. So things that would make you suspicious of this would be bradycardia, hypertension and pupillary changes. So the first thing I would say is that you need to keep moving towards neurosurgical intervention. So don't stop the ambulance, keep going. So to do this, you'll have to have anticipated that this is going to happen en route and have prepared for it. So you'll need a long extension set onto one of your peripheral lines that the patient has in so you can administer treatments um, without having to get out of your seat. So the first thing that I would give in this scenario is a thiopentone bolus. And the reason for doing this is to make sure the patient is well sedated. And also if the patient is seizing, it's going to stop the seizure. Um, again, making sure I avoid hypotension. So I'll already have fluid drawn up should I need it, push dose pressors, and I'll have a peripheral noradrenaline infusion attached and set on the pump or either running, should I have needed it previously to maintain cerebral perfusion pressure. Um, you can also give further osmotic agents, either hypertonic saline or mannitol. So it's important that this will have been drawn up as well in anticipation of this occurring on transfer. The other thing that you can do, should you suspect your patient is coning, um, is to hyperventilate them for a brief period of time as reducing the CO2 will reduce the cerebral blood flow, but being aware that this can cause cerebral ischemia. So this treatment should only be used for as brief a period as possible. Okay, so that's a quick run through raised intracranial pressure. Um, I hope you find it useful. So please get in touch with any comments or questions that you have. Thanks for listening.